Well, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, famously asks, what is God? We've looked at this question a little bit already. What is God? And the answer there is, God is a spirit, infinite. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Some of the children I know have this memorized. Now, I want to shorten it and clarify it for our purposes this morning. And to do so, we could say this. God is infinite. God is infinite in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Thus, God's infinity is what we might call a meta-attribute. A meta-attribute. That is an attribute which qualifies all other attributes. God is infinite in his being. God is infinite in his wisdom. God is infinite in his holiness. He is infinite in his justice. He's infinite in his goodness. He's infinite in his truth. All that God is, he is infinitely. Now, the Bible usually puts this in more concrete, like poetic language. For example, here's Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. And your judgments are like the great deep. So God's love, God's faithfulness, his righteousness, his judgments, they are all vast. They are all beyond our grasp. They all exceed our feeble limitations. And so again here, we are before a staggering and a humbling mystery. I've mentioned Stephen Charnock before. If you don't know who he is, he's a 17th century theologian. He has this massive two-volume work, over a thousand pages, called The Existence and the Attributes of God. It's kind of a landmark in our tradition for thinking about God. But Charnock says this of God's infinity. He says, whatever God is, he is infinitely so. Conceive of him as excellent, without any imperfection, a spirit without parts, great without quantity, perfect without quality, everywhere without place, understanding without ignorance, wise without reasoning, light without darkness, infinitely excelling the beauty of all creatures. And he continues... When you have risen to the highest, conceive him, yet infinitely above all you can conceive, and acknowledge the infirmity of your own minds. And whatsoever conception comes into your minds, say, this is not God. God is more than this. That's a bracing tonic, right, to a culture that's not used to thinking of God that way, to a culture that generally has a pretty manageable view of God. Whatever you can conceive, God is going to be infinitely beyond that. And and dealing with God is going to make us deal with our infirmities. So we shall try, 
we shall try to grasp just the outskirts of this infinity this morning. And we'll make the three points that are there in your bulletin. Infinity, immensity, and Emmanuel. By immensity, I mean omnipresence. But immensity starts with an I, so we use that. Um, so first, infinity. So, so God is, according to our confession, infinite in being and perfection. And by infinite, we, we kind of think we know what this means. It means something like no boundaries, no limits, no spatial constraints. This is, some of you know by now, right? This is called negative theology. Notice these are all negations. There's no other way to get to God but to deal with created realities and negate stuff. God has no boundaries. He has no limits. He has no spatial constraints. We are not directly describing him when we say this. His infinity is a corollary to his being a spirit and being without a body. So there is some overlap in this sermon to that previous sermon. Now, if you remember the sermon on simplicity and unity, you might be thinking, well, all the sermons should be the same if all the attributes of God are one, which they are. But in our minds, they're not. They're diffuse and diverse. So we distinguish. God is infinite. So anyone, and this should be some, somewhat review, anyone with a body exists somewhere. Right? And we, so we live these profoundly local, limited existences. We're bound in space. We're located. We're locatable. And we're, we're lo- located or locatable in only one spot at a time, right? We creep around from place to place. But God isn't bound like this. Space doesn't, ref- doesn't confine or restrict him. And there's nothing local about his deity. Now, you're used to this in the West, but this is a radical thing in the world of Israel, where, where there are local pagan deities, all of which you could find and could only be in one place, or they would only rule over one city or one geography. They'd be tangible pagan gods. They'd be visible. So we know this, I think. At least we confess this to be true. But I want to challenge you with some of the implications of this, because they're much more radical than we think. For example... Think of Solomon. In our first lesson this morning, our first lesson from 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon has, according to divine command, he built God, this most magnificent house, this monumental, lavish, exquisite, ornate, expensive temple. It's a moment of great national pride and celebration. More than that, More than that, it's the height of godly, covenantal, cultural achievement. More than that, it is done, we should add, at divine direction and with divine blessing. And in the midst of his prayer of dedication, it's it's as if he realizes the futility, the impotence of the whole thing. And he says, somewhat unexpectedly in this context... But will God dwell on the earth? It's almost like you could hear the assembled crowd shuffling like, well, I thought that was the whole point of building this elaborate, expensive temple. What's he doing? Where's he going with this prayer? But, you know, 
Will God dwell on the earth? And then he, then he says this. Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. And then he denigrates the whole project. How much less this house that I have built? You don't invite this guy the next time you want to dedicate an extension to your building, right? You're not inviting this guy. How much less this thing? How pathetic this house is compared to the God who cannot be captured in heaven itself or the highest heavens. Quite a thing to pray at a temple dedication ceremony. And it's echoed later by Paul in Acts 17 where Paul says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. We've already looked at this, right? God doesn't need anything from us, nor is he served by human hands, much less does he dwell in these temples. Right? When someone grasps the infinite being of God, they find themselves saying stuff like this. How inconsequential All of our Christian monuments, our grand cathedrals, all of our buildings dedicated to the glory of God, how overinflated our impression of these things are. We're used to drooling over them as if they're some extraordinary accomplishment. And all of these cultural and artistic things are large in our eyes. Why? Because we are not staggered by the infinity of God. If we were, we would realize what little, 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 little things we and our projects are and our works. But we don't. We're like, oh, this is a great thing. This is going to expand the kingdom. Puny little puffs of smoke acting as if the fate of the purposes of God in history depend on our labors. That's what the infinity of God does for a person. Now, unlike our architectural work, Solomon's temple, get this, is, Solomon's temple is actually going to house the name and the Shekinah glory of God in it. Right? God will, in a real way, dwell in this one temple and nowhere else. Nothing we've ever built will ever have this dignity. Nothing we've ever built shall have the dignity of Solomon's temple. But still Solomon's like, eh, It's superfluous. He knows, Solomon knows, even that building, where the glory cloud of God descended, even that building is superfluous. That it won't capture, that it won't contain, that it won't limit, that it doesn't really answer to the glory and splendor of the infinite God. Heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. I mean, heaven itself is not enough of a splendor you know, a, a radiant dwelling place, a habitation, how much less this house? It's almost insulting to all the builders who cut the stone and hauled it down in ships from Tyre and bought the lumber and all the money and all the, all the labor and all the time and all the architectural design inspired by the Spirit, by the way. The greatest cathedrals in the world 
for all their beauty, are but broken, opaque, tiny, dim, dim pointers to the infinite God. Like we learned about Notre Dame, they're vulnerable. They're transient. They're crumbling structures in crumbling time. They're enveloped in the same web of decay that every finite thing is developed in. But because we aren't staggered by the infinity of God, again, we are correlativists, meaning we, we end up just instinctively correlating God to us, correlating him to the creation just a bit. And then he is not that staggering. And then the stuff over here, whoo, that stuff is really big. Right, that's the God and X problem that I started this series with. Right? Cathedrals are X. God fades into the background. The attribute of infinity then. Right? That sounds like an abstract thing. You might have come here this morning thinking, how can the infinity of God practically impinge upon me? The attribute of infinity must chasten us. Here's what it does for us. It cleanses us from our disordered love of finite things. Cleanses us from our disordered love of finite things. Including, by the way, finite Christian-y things. Right? You heard that in the, in the, in the psalm that we sung this morning, right? Where God would still be the infinite God were all the nations dead. We are constantly seeing small things as if they were big and the infinite God as if he were finite or just a bigger version of us. So here's God's own take on the temple and thus, by implication, on all our building projects. Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All of the builders, God is saying, have not really come to terms with my infinity. That's what Isaiah 66 is saying. Look, all of you people who want to build me a house, who want to create some glorious place for my glory to rest, you have not really come to terms with who I am, with my infinity, or with my relationship to space. So we can refine this further. When we talk about God as infinite, we are not thinking of it as like the mathematical concept of infinity where you keep adding and adding and adding. God is not ongoing space, right? He's not stretched out space. You cannot start with this creation, stretch things out, and approach God's infinity. Karl Barth used to say, you cannot say man in a really loud voice and get to God. Infinity means God transcends space. He does not take up space. He's non-spatial. He's aspatial. We've looked at this a little bit before when we talked about the spirituality of God. But this non-spatial does not mean that God is not near. It's quite the opposite. This is the good news, right? The, The infinite God transcends space. He cannot be captured in space. He cannot be imprisoned in space or in our projects. And thus he's free to be everywhere. And only such a God is free to be. So God then is above space, without space, 
and yet in all spaces. Above space, without space, and yet in all spaces. If you remember the quote from Charnock at the beginning, he said, God is everywhere without place. This brings us to the second point, immensity. Again, I'm using immensity as a synonym for omnipresence. Right, A word which means present everywhere or present in all places. The non-spatial God is ubiquitous, meaning he is present everywhere. So notice, notice like the logic here. The fact that God is infinite implies his immensity. It's just, again, because he transcends space that he can be omnipresent. Again, he who is above space and without space is yet in all spaces. He fills all things with his presence. Here's, here's the prophet Jeremiah. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So God is at hand, and he is far away, and he fills heaven and earth. And of course, we heard in the second reading today, the classic text for God's omnipresence from Psalm 139. Let me just reread a piece of it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. So whether it's up to heaven or down to Sheol, if he takes the wings of the morning referring to the sunrise in the east, or if he dwells in the uttermost parts of the sea, referring to the Mediterranean, which is west of the promised land, up, down, east, west, the presence of God cannot be escaped. No escape, and for the psalmist, this is a delight. No escape, no regrets. You might remember famously Jean-Paul Sartre, the 20th century French philosopher thought that a God who was omnipresent, who was always watching you and who was everywhere, was like living in a police state. For Sartre, this was totalitarian, right? For the psalmist, this is a great joy and a great delight and a great liberation. So I want to unpack this a little bit further. Because God is not, you might expect this by now, right? God is not present the way we are present. And this is, this, it's key to grasp this to avoid what I've been calling cognitive idolatry, which is either making God in our image or just a much bigger, better version of us. To avoid this, we affirm that God is wholly present everywhere. Again, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y. Completely, fully present everywhere. So God is not partially here and partially over there, right? He's not spread out like a gas or like light in the air or anything like that. He is present, and this is good news for us, right? Wherever you are, God is present in the fullness of his divine being. At every point in the universe, 
Inside things, outside things, around things, at the subatomic level of things, at macro levels, everywhere, all of God is present. And Augustine, the, the great 4th century Christian pastor, bishop, theologian, Augustine, get, he gets at this by saying this. God is an infinite circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Now, that is truly astonishing stuff, right? God is an infinite circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. God is, in a real way, nowhere. Because he's not contained or captured or locatable at any particular point. Yet, he is fully, wholly, not partially present everywhere. The center of the circle is everywhere. The circumference is nowhere. This is the infinite God. As I said before, he does not displace other bodies, right? When we are somewhere, that means other things can't be in that exact spot. We displace things. Like you jump in the pool, you displace water. God is everywhere in the pool, and the water's unaffected. God is more inward to you. This is another thing that Augustine used to always say, but it's true. Right? God is more inward to you than you are to yourself. God is nearer to your internal being than your spirit is. And yet, we're not displaced by his presence. God is present in such a way that he gives all things being, that he upholds all things, that his presence and his power work with and through our presence and our powers in some mysterious, non-competitive way. So, Acts 17, in him, through him, we live and move and have our being. We are always in God in this sense. All movement that we have, when I move my hands, this is done by God and me in a non-competitive, free way. (laughs) And yet, for all of God's intimate nearness to us, and here the mystery thickens, right? There's no mixture of God and creatures. Like if we want to put something inside of another thing, like you want to put some chocolate in your milk or something, we mix, the things have to mix together. We don't know how to put a thing deeply interior into another thing without there being mixture. And yet for all of God's intimacy with us, there is no mixture between God and creatures. There's no blurring of the distinction between the creator and us creatures. God's omnipresence does not imply, it does not lead to pantheism. The idea that all things are God, or all things are in God. So what do we want to say here? We want to say this, God is in all things, but all things are not God. And so this mystery, the mystery of God's omnipresence, is that there's no distance, no space between God and creatures, and at the same time, no mixing of God and creatures. But we have to say one more thing here. We should state this, right? Though God is present everywhere and completely present, he's not everywhere in the same way. 
And this helps us read our Bibles better, I think. For, so, for example, the Bible will speak of God being uniquely present in majesty and in glory in heaven. He's not imprisoned in heaven, right? His essence is not confined there, but he is, even as he was in, in Solomon's temple, in the Holy of Holies, he is uniquely present there, present in a special way. Right? This is why the Bible can speak of God being far off or God being near. But this doesn't mean his location has somehow moved. This type of language is often a reference to our moral relationship to God, not his measured distance from us. He is near to the humble. He is far from the proud. We draw near to him. He draws near to us. But none of this has anything to do with spatial distance. God might manifest. He might show the effects of his presence differently. Right? He may give a vision or a dream, or he might perform a miracle, depending on the situation. But he is always wholly present in the fullness of his essence everywhere. So here's Sharnak again on this, on this question. He says, God is in heaven in regard to the manifestation of his glory. In hell, by the expression of his justice. In earth, by the discoveries of his wisdom, power, patience, and compassion. In his people, as monuments of his grace. And in all, as regards his essence. Spectacularly wild stuff. Notice again... His presence with his people is not the same as his presence in all. He's uniquely present with the church. But in all cases, he is wholly, completely present. So that's his immensity. The third and final point, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And here this touches home for us again, I hope. Right? The infinite omnipresent God, who was with his people throughout the Old Testament, right? In the fullness of time, that one comes among us. The infinite God dwells bodily in the incarnate Jesus. In him, we're told, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So it is in the culmination in the fullness of God's purposes in Jesus Christ, right? It is through a finite human nature that we are given access to the infinite one. It is through a finite human nature that we are given access to the infinite one. We don't stop with the finite human nature of Jesus, but through it we are given access to the infinite God. We heard this in the gospel lesson. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, this God with us, the infinite God with us. So now, now in the new covenant, God is with us, not merely by his invisible omnipresence and power, although that is still true, but he's with us in the flesh in all of its weakness and vulnerability. Right? The one who is non-spatial and above space and beyond space now becomes visible. And now he takes up space 
just as we do. Infinity, if you will, is now placed in your grasp in Jesus Christ. But if you don't do the background work on who God is, then you won't see the wonder of this. This is why it's important to to talk about who becomes incarnate. That's what we're doing in this series, right? Who is this Jesus who becomes incarnate? Who is the one, the person who's taken on flesh? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So he's God. More precisely, he's the second person of the Trinity. God, the eternal Son of the Father. Now, do you know what this means? This means that the person of Jesus, being divine, is infinite. Right? Jesus is an infinite person. I know this is perhaps a little difficult, but it's really important to get this clear. The human nature is not infinite, but the person bearing the human nature is the infinite God of whom we've been talking. Right? The human nature is not infinite, but the person bearing the human nature is the infinite God of whom we speak. And it is because it is the infinite God who is incarnate for us that we who have offended the infinite God can be saved. The infinite value of Christ's atonement, the infinite value of Christ's atonement is rooted in the fact that the person making the atonement is infinite. So it turns out the infinity of God is at the heart of the gospel. You can't get the gospel right without this. Why is Christ's atonement of infinite value? Because the one who is suffering in the flesh is the infinite second person of the Holy Trinity. And thus the dignity and worth of his suffering is infinite. The infinity of God should illumine for us the infinite value of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Right? We tend to get... Side, not sidetrack, but we tend to, we, we see the physical suffering, right? We meditate on it on Good Friday. We read these long passages. But at some point we have to ask, why does that suffering, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of crucifixions in the Roman world. Why does that suffering have the effect that it does? And the answer is, because that's the infinite God who has infinite dignity and value and worth in human flesh suffering. Here's another 17th century Englishman named Matthew Mead. He says, Alas, it is an infinite righteousness that must satisfy for our sins. For it is an infinite God that is offended by us. If ever your sin is to be pardoned, he says, it is infinite mercy that must pardon it. If ever you are to be reconciled to God, it is infinite merit that must do it. If ever your heart is to be changed and your soul is to be renewed, it is infinite power that must affect it. And if ever your soul should escape and be saved at last, it is infinite grace that must save it, he says. Right? Because the incarnate one is the infinite God, his work has infinite worth. That's the whole sermon in one sentence. I'll I'll give it to you again. That's what I want you to grasp today. Because the incarnate one is the infinite God, 
His work has infinite worth. This is why it's so silly for us to flee to other things besides Christ when we sin or when we're broken or when we're in pain. We need infinite righteousness. We need infinite mercy. We need infinite grace. And now that same infinite Son, exalted on high, manifests His universal presence and His love and His care for you through the gift of the infinite Spirit. Through the infinite Spirit, He who was present in the flesh remains remains present with you invisibly, with us, to the end of the age. Not only omnipresent, but savingly, mercifully, graciously present with us. I mean, I know we take this for granted, but we believe in a God who's invisible to us, who has now ascended into heaven and and yet through the Spirit is present fully at every point with the church, with every member. He dwells in us redemptively to comfort, to pardon, to cleanse, to teach, and to guide, to cultivate communion with us, to make us temples of the Spirit. So he's present with us in the mode of faith until the current heavens and earth give way to the new creation. So it is for this, it is for this, which John depicts, by the way, in Revelation 21, right? The saints see God's face. He's, I will be their God. They will be my people. They will gaze upon my face. Revelation 21. It's for that, for infinite, unending communion with the infinite God. It is for that that you are redeemed at infinite price by the infinite person of the Son. So do you think infinity doesn't matter? Right? You are saved, redeemed by infinite price, by an infinite person, for infinite, unending communion with the infinite God. That's why you have to spend time thinking through the infinity of God. It doesn't stay off by itself. Such is the sweetness of God's infinity. It means we're never beyond the reach of his presence, or his mercy, or his grace, or his goodness. Because God is infinite in all those things. And it means that while we wait for that great day, we fear no evil. Why? Because he is holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is holy, completely Emmanuel. God with you. Amen.